1: ...against sin, then you need only a small salvation. If your sin was a minor thing, then you need only a minor Savior. If Judgment Day is a light thing, then you don't need much righteousness to survive it. And if God is constantly changing, then Genesis 19 has nothing to say to us today. But if God never changes if He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then Genesis 19 speaks to us today. And Genesis 19 tells us that God has a great wrath against sin, and therefore we need a great salvation. That our sin is a great matter in His sight, therefore we need a great Savior. That the righteousness needed to survive Judgment Day is a great and perfect righteousness, and therefore we need Christ. And that's where I end up in Genesis 19. Now there are an awful lot of timeless lessons in here, I've given you seven, we started to look at them last week. But there are far more than that, and almost infinite would be the applications of the things we could learn from Genesis 19. Last week we saw the narrative as it unfolded in eight acts, the steps that have been read to you already this morning and that you heard last week, of a narrative that changed the course of human history, that removed forever. Two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and smaller cities in the whole region, turned it into a salty desert wasteland, a land of death rather than a land of life. In Act 1, the angels arrived in verses 1 through 3, and Lot extended his hospitality to them, as you heard. In Act 2, the Sodomites attacked, and Lot sought to protect the guests who had come into his home, but he failed to do it. Rather, it was the angels that protected him. By striking these evil people with blindness and preventing them from finding the door as they were seeking and pressing in to find it. In Act 3, we saw Lot trying but failing to rescue his extended family. They thought he was mocking. They thought he was joking. He had no weight, no moral authority with them, and they blew him off. We saw also that Lot was lingering in Sodom, not wanting to leave. Verses 12 through 14. In Act 4, we saw... In verses 15 through 17, the angels strongly rescuing Lot, his wife, and his daughters from Sodom from certain destruction. In Act 5, we saw the angels graciously allowing Lot to stay in Zoar, a small city, by the way, and he stayed there. And we saw how God graciously also how God also graciously spared the city of Zoar because one righteous man was in it. In Act 6, we saw finally. The wrath of God poured down from heaven above on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroying them forever. We saw also Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt because she turned and looked back and lingered and disobeyed the angel's command to flee. We saw also Acts 7, Abraham beholding the destruction the next day and the smoke rising from the plain like a densely boiling furnace. A pillar of smoke of destruction. And we saw how Abraham saw that, but he could not see Lot's rescue, his salvation in Zoar. Next week in the epilogue, we'll see Lot and his daughters in the cave, the end uh, to a sordid descent uh, for Lot. We began last week by looking at seven timeless lessons. The first lesson that I brought out and emphasized by itself is that God has a passion against evil. Our God is a passionate being. He has a great wrath against sin. And he hasn't changed at all. God has an anger against sin, against every sin. And Sodom and Gomorrah were meant to be put on display. God put his wrath on display for all time so that we can see this is the kind of God that he is. And the scripture reveals, though we probably wouldn't know it if it hadn't told us, and if we didn't know what to look for, the scripture reveals that God reveals his wrath every day. That there's some display of God's wrath every day. It says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so God is pouring out his wrath in some hidden way every day. But you see, Sodom and Gomorrah was different because it wasn't a hidden pouring out of the wrath of God. It was an open display. It was a display of God's holiness For God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, and he cannot and will not tolerate wrong. And he had tolerated, it seemed, Sodom and Gomorrah long enough. But We saw also last week how this great, this fearsome wrath of God was metaphorically put into a cup and handed to Christ to drink. And how Jesus drank it to the bottom at the cross. Hallelujah, what a Savior! That he drank in, spiritually speaking, fire and brimstone for you and me so that we could go to heaven and not hell. And I say to you that you will have a light appraisal of what Jesus did for you if you have a light appraisal of the wrath of God. The more you feel, I mean really feel in your heart that you deserved what the Sodomites got in Genesis 19, the more grateful you will be to Jesus for drinking your cup for you. The more joyful you will be, the less you will complain about the circumstances of your life the gladder you will sing hymns and praise songs to him, if you feel the weight of your own guilt and the burden of God's wrath which hung over you apart from Christ, and then you realize that Jesus stood in between you and the wrath and drank it completely, oh, what joy is yours and what great salvation. But if you have not trusted in Christ, then all of that wrath still remains on you. All the wrath for what you have done, for the sins that you have committed. And this is what we saw last week. Now, this week, we begin with the second lesson, and it has to do with Sodom's open sinfulness. It's recorded for us in Genesis 19, and it has to do with sexual perversion, with homosexuality. Now, the last year in America, this issue has really forced itself upon us, hasn't it? Uh, We saw uh, an activist mayor in San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, who took it upon himself, contrary to the laws of the state, to issue 2,000 marriage licenses to same-sex couples. He was lauded as a courageous hero by some, the same people who wondered why uh, the present attorney general doesn't uphold the law of the land on abortion. But this law of the land was openly flouted, and those marriages were permitted in San Francisco. Uh, But that wasn't all. It wasn't long after that that on May 17, 2004, due to a court order, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts became the first state to authorize same sex marriage. This is all part of a vast plot originating from the mind of the devil, but also intelligently advanced by people to change the way we think about homosexuality. The agenda here is not merely tolerance, not merely acceptance, but rather a celebration of what the Bible calls perversion. We are to celebrate it. And if we don't, we're called homophobes or narrow-minded bigots or other things. And this is a great concern to me. There's a group called GLAAD, G-L-A-A-D, Gays and Lesbians in Alliance Against Defamation. And their stated strategy is that they want to be positive and cheerful. They actively seek to train media outlets, news stations, for example, on how to handle stories about gay people. Realizing that the strange and behavior and bizarre clothing worn by people at gay pride parades is not the image they want to get across. Rather, they urge local media stations to do special interest stories on gay people. You know, getting dressed, going to work, uh, everyday life type things, shopping, this kind of thing. So as to normalize what the Bible presents here in Genesis 19 as shocking and evil. TV programs, movies, songs, popular culture, controlled by the media elite in Hollywood and by others, seek to brainwash us to think differently than what the Bible says. Now, I have some concerns about all of this. First of all, my concern is that those who are caught up in this lifestyle may think that it is actually something good, something to be celebrated, and as a result, will not turn to Christ... Will not trust in him, will not believe in him, will not repent, and therefore will stand under the wrath of God that all sinners stand under if they don't turn to Christ and repent. That's my greatest concern. That there may even be somebody here in the sanctuary today that thinks it's all right, that has accepted the the agenda, the brainwashing message, and therefore will never flee to Christ, and therefore will spend eternity in hell apart from him. That's my greatest concern. But I have some other concerns too. I'm concerned that both those individuals and people in the church will think of homosexuality as an unforgivable sin or something from which you can never be transformed. It's permanent. It's kind of built into your genes. There's nothing you can do. And that is false as well. Rather, I'd rather that you embrace Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel and realize the very same gospel that saved you can save somebody out of that lifestyle. That's my second concern. My third concern just goes to the nature of what the human heart does with conviction. Whenever we read a story like this, we're seeking a way of escape where we're not standing under it. And it's really pretty easy in Genesis 19, if you don't struggle with that sin, the sin of homosexuality, you think this doesn't apply to me. You think that the lessons of Sodom and Gomorrah don't say anything to you at all. I found one verse, a single verse in Ezekiel which changed forever the way I looked at this passage. Look at it, it's in the cover of your bulletin. In, Genesis, in Ezekiel 16.49, the prophet there tells us the sin for which Sodom was destroyed. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's clear from the way Moses wrote Genesis 19 that he intends to connect the perversion, the homosexual perversion of the Sodomites to the judgment that comes. That's the way it's written. Please don't misunderstand that. I'm just saying it was bigger than that. It went broader than that. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom and of her daughters. They were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and did nothing for the poor and needy. That verse changes forever the way I look at what happened in Genesis 19. It isn't just about homosexuality, is it? It's about a lot more than that. And so I come to, to deal with the text and the entire account biblically to try to understand everything that's here. But the first lesson definitely that we need to draw out today, after the lesson we learned last week, is that there was an open sin of homosexuality in this account in Genesis 19. Now, some people, apologists for that way of life that I was talking to before, that are somehow trying to find the Bible to support their lifestyle, actually question whether Genesis 19 has anything to do with homosexuality at all. They say that what it literally says is, in verse 5 of chapter 19, they called to Lot... Where are the men who came to you tonight? This is the ESV. The NIV NIV typically tries to explain what the text means rather than just simply translating it in this case. But what it simply says in the ESV, I think it's done a good job. They called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's all it says. And see, what these folks do, I saw this on on a website that unfolded this whole way of thinking. What they said is that all the only issue here is that the residents of Sodom simply wanted to be hospitable. They just wanted to be friendly. And Lot was hoarding them all to the, himself. Why are some of you laughing? I mean, this is amazing to me. That this is what people can actually do with Scripture. It, they say, now you, you tell me you want to be literalistic. That's literally what it says. Bring them out to us that we may know them. And they'll even go so far as to say that God brings down terrible wrath and judgment on people who won't accept those who are different than themselves, who are afraid of them or ignorant or bigoted or biased, and actually they're setting the table then for the wrath to fall down on homophobia rather than on homosexuality. You see how it works? They turn the whole thing around. But may I say to you that it doesn't make any sense whatsoever? Is the issue in Genesis 19 failed hospitality? Is that how you read the text? Does that not pervert the way you would read any text? The Bible is using a euphemism. It is a common Hebrew word to know. But it says very plainly in Genesis 4 Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son, Cain. Now, I don't think they were just getting to know each other and I don't just think it was their date night. I think they had marital relations and as a result, Cain was conceived. Uh, Even plainer, in verse 8, it says that Lot brought out his daughters and says, here you can have them, they've never known a man. It uses the exact Hebrew word, exact same Hebrew word, right in the text. But if that's not convincing for you, the despicable parallel, the wretched parallel account in Judges 19 Perhaps you've read it. This happened now in Israel, not just in Sodom and Gomorrah, but it happened in Israel. Don't turn there, but just listen. Judges 19, verse 22, it says, As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. That's what it says. But then in verse 25 of that same chapter, it says, But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. Now, you cannot tell me that's about hospitality. It's about great perversion and wickedness. And it's clearly meant to be a parallel. In those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And they ended up just like Sodom. But The clincher for me is in Jude 7. It says Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, it says, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Literally the Greek in Jude 7 is to go away after other flesh, it says. And the context is one of great judgment and the rejection of God. But you don't need all these. You just need the simple biblical teaching on these issues. Very straightforward statements that God makes in other places. For example, in Leviticus 18.22 it says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. I'm wondering how much plainer it can get than that. Or this, Leviticus 20 verse 13, it says, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Or this, in Romans 1, 26 and 27, it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women uh, exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. You simply cannot twist the scripture to make homosexuality righteous. It isn't. It's a great sin. And it's portrayed in the middle of Romans 1 as a great example of the way humans pervert what God has ordained and said, No, we will do what we want. Thank you very much. We are kings. We are queens of our own lives. It's a great example of the attitude of sin that is in all of our hearts, only taken out to that degree. These activists try to find establishment for their lifestyle by twisting Scripture. I would urge them to do something different because the way out is also found in Scripture. The way out is found through faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because you know what? There's not one of us that didn't need saving. There's not one of us that didn't need the heart of stone taken out and the heart of flesh given to us. There's not one of us that didn't need the scripture written on our hearts, the law of God written on our hearts, the indwelling spirit to help us live that righteous life. There's not one of us that didn't need Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Not one. But the answer is not deny your sin, say it's not sin, say that the Bible calls it righteous. Not at all. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You know what that means? Don't buy into the propaganda that's going out today. Don't be deceived on this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality That's verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It really can't be plainer than that. If that's what you are, you will not go to heaven. But then he says, and such were some of you. You see, conversion transforms sinners and makes them righteous. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is great power for transformation. It says you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. God has power to transform sinners and make them righteous. He has power to give you a great and comprehensive salvation. To take away from you everything sin did to you. The corruption of your mind and of your heart. You're standing before God under His wrath. The the fact that you have no righteousness with which to survive judgment day, the things that it's done to your body, the things it's done to the world around us, the salvation in Christ can transform all of that and make it perfect. Now that's the way out, not by twisting Scripture. So that is Sodom's open sin. But then there was the other sin, and I've alluded to it, it to you enough that you can see it. Look at it again, Ezekiel 16 and 49. It says, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. They were overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Arrogant. Overfed. That means too much bread, literally in Hebrew. Unconcerned. And did not help the poor and needy. That's what God says in Ezekiel 16, 49. And boy, has it brought me conviction. I mean, it's convict me. It's worked worked me over. And it still does. I I believe that this screams America more than homosexuality does. Although that's part of the problem as well. I said to you last week what was going on. Remember how in in Genesis 13.10, Lot looked up at the whole region and it was well watered and lush like the garden of God. And there was ancient irrigation systems found there. These people were prosperous. It was a lush land. Resulting in bumper crops year after year, resulting in an abundance of food. The trade routes went through there, and as a result, they became materially prosperous, not just with plenty of food, but plenty of everything the world had to offer. As a result, they became lazy, they became indolent, complacent. Their hearts grew hard, they were looking for the next big thrill because that kind of life leaves you numb. And they found it in, in, in sexual ways, but they also found it in other ways. But along with that, the backside of that is that your heart gets hard and callous toward the needy, and you never think, wait a minute, the abundance that I have is really meant for them. It's never been meant for me. I have enough. I was meant to be a, a conduit, a pipe of blessing to the poor and needy. They said that they didn't do it. Uh, ABC News report from December 8th says that nearly two-thirds of Americans are overweight. Almost one in three Americans is obese, according to the federal government. Physical inactivity and being overweight account for more than 300,000 premature deaths annually in the U.S., second only to tobacco-related deaths. One preacher I heard said more more people die with a fork in their hand than a knife in their back. And uh, I think that that's... A testimony in reference to what's going on in America today. The Center for Disease Control reports indicate that diabetes increased by 33% among American adults during the 1990s. Reflecting a surge of obesity during that same period. They're starting to see more juvenile diabetes. More youngsters are overweight. It also says that the residents of Sodom were arrogant. They were prideful. They were boastful. Pride was a big theme. Surely we are the people and wisdom will die with us. Surely it's because we're we're so good at farming that we're so wealthy, you see. There's an arrogance there. I see it in our country too. God hates arrogance wherever he finds it. Uh, I hate the word pride. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. We see arrogance and pride. And we call ourselves the greatest nation on earth. Alexis de Tocqueville, a commentator uh, 200 years ago, said this in a famous quote, he's a Frenchman and he was just traveling through America and just commenting on it and he said this, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers and it was not there, in her fertile fields and boundless prairies and it was not there, in her rich mines and her vast world of commerce and it was not there, Not until I went to the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. That's very appropriate when you look at what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's not in the wealth and prosperity that the greatness of a nation lies. It also says that the residents of Sodom were unconcerned. The ESV says they had prosperous ease. Prosperous ease. There's an old saying, perhaps you've heard it, idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? When you have plenty of time, you get into trouble, don't you? But the Lord has meant for us to be busy about the work of the kingdom. There's no room for idleness. And so also America has a common unconcern, a prosperous ease, a luxurious comfort. It makes our hearts unresponsive to the goads of conscience and to the word of the Lord. And as a result of all of this, it says they did nothing for the poor and needy. They were unresponsive to the cries of the poor and needy. Randy Alcorn from Eternal Perspectives Ministry said this, If you have enough food, decent clothes, if you live in a home that shields you from the weather and you own some kind of reliable transportation, you are in the top 15% of the world's most wealthy people. Add some savings, a hobby like hunting or fishing that requires equipment, two cars in any condition, a variety of clothing and your own house, you have reached the top 5% in the world in terms of wealth. You may not feel wealthy, but that's only because you're comparing yourself to someone else who has more than you do. To get a better handle on this reality, consider that more than 1.1 billion people in the world live on less than the equivalent of one U.S. dollar per day. 1.1 billion people live on a dollar a day. 500 million people are hungry, and another 500 million people are so poor they don't get enough food to be fully productive. Every day, nearly 75,000 people, most of them children, die because of dirty drinking water, disease, or malnutrition. Now, what could the church do about it? Well, let me describe some statistics to tell you or give you an idea what the church could do about it. In the year 2000, American evangelicals collectively made $2.66 trillion in income. $2.66 trillion in income. Over the next 50 years, statistics show that between $41 trillion and $136 trillion will pass from older Americans to younger uh, Americans, suggesting that roughly $1 to $3 trillion a year in wealth changes hands. The average donation by adults who attend U.S. Protestant churches is about $17 per week. Let me read that again. Um, The average donation by adults who attend U.S. Protestant churches is about $17 per week. Among church members of 11 primary Protestant denominations, or their historical antecedents, in the United States and Canada, per member giving as a percentage of income was lower in the year 2000 than either in 1921 or 1933. In 1921, per member giving as a percentage of income was 2.9%. In 1933, at the depth of the Great Depression, per member giving grew to 3.3%. But by two thousand, after a half century of unprecedented prosperity, given had fallen, giving had fallen to two point six percent. Isn't that incredible? It's like the more prosperous, the less is given, percentage wise. Overall, only three to five percent of Americans who donate money to a church tithe uh, tithe or give a tenth of their incomes, though many more claim to do so. In other words, only three to five percent actually really do tithe, although more claim that they do. Thirty-three percent of U.S. born-again Christians say it is impossible for them to get ahead in life because of financial debt that they have incurred, credit card debts and other things like that. If members of historically Christian churches in the United States had raised their giving to Old Testament standard, minimum standard of giving, the tithe, ten percent, in 2000, an additional $139 billion would uh, would have become available per year. $139 billion per year. If Christians just raised their giving to the level of 10%, 80% of the world's evangelical wealth is in North America, right where we live. 80% is here. And the total represents way more than enough to fund the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I find that convicting. Actually, let me be honest with you, I find it shattering. Now, this was the sin of Sodom and her sisters. They were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and did nothing for the poor and needy. Let that not be said of you. Let it not be said of you. And if you fear that it might rightly be said of you, then repent. And say, Lord, from this point forward, I want to live differently. From this point forward, I don't want to be like that. From this point forward, I want to live for your kingdom and for your glory, not for myself. The fourth lesson, Lot's dreadful descent, I want to talk about next week. I will say this, though. Lot did not understand what was happening in his heart. He didn't realize how little by little he was being corrupted by Sodom and Gomorrah. As a result, he descended to a level he probably never could have imagined he would get to. He didn't see the hardening happening in his heart week by week, month by month, and year by year. But I will say this about Lot. He was called righteous in the Bible. You know, 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, which talks about Lot, is one of the more surprising passages if you know anything about Old Testament history. If you read the story of Lot in Genesis, you know, uh, 12 up through 19, would you have concluded he's a righteous man? Would you have looked at him and said, you know, there's a righteous man, I wish I could be like him. Actually, like someone once said, could it be my whole life is only to serve as a warning for others? I would hate that to be said about me. My whole life is just, don't be like me. Well, it seems that that's what it, the way it was for Lot. But the Bible calls him righteous. Now listen to what it says in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. It says, God rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Three times Peter called him righteous. Three times. It's hard to believe, given how polluted we see him by the end of the account, which we'll talk about next week. But what was the nature of Lot's righteousness? Well, this is it. He was tormented in his soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. He seemed powerless to change it. He seemed paralyzed to move out from it. But he was tormented by it within. He hated it. He hated where he was living. These are strong words. Tormented means distressed or oppressed, kind of like a form of slavery uh, with a wicked master. He was tormented like the paralyzed man that Jesus healed in Matthew 8. He was tormented like the demons would be afraid to be thrown. The demons of the Gadarenes, don't throw us in the pit lest we be tormented before the appointed time. Same Greek word. He was tormented like the boat that was tossed to and fro in the waves and Jesus still the storm. He was ripped apart by what he was seeing in Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is this important? Well, you may feel powerless to do anything about America. You may feel paralyzed to move in any way. But the question is, what's going on inside you? Are you tormented by what you see? Does it bother you? And I say to you that the account indicates that it was this soul attitude that saved Lot's life. It was the fact that it deeply bothered him the way Sodom and Gomorrah was. That's what saved his life. There's a parallel account in Ezekiel 9. Don't turn there, but listen. This is a time when Jerusalem was corrupted, when there was great wickedness, and God sent uh, Ezekiel the prophet to speak to the people. He brought Ezekiel on a kind of a spirit tour of the underbellies of life in Jerusalem. And he showed uh, Ezekiel all of the wickedness. And then at one point in Ezekiel 9, three angels stand before God. And one of the angels has a writing kit by his side. And the angel... Or God commands the angel, go through Jerusalem and put a mark on everyone who grieves and laments over these things. And so off the angel goes to put a mark on everyone. The other two angels, he says, now go behind the first angel and kill everyone who does not have the mark on them. In other words, if you grieve and lament, you will survive. But if you do not grieve and lament, you will be destroyed. At that moment, Ezekiel fell down and said, oh Lord, will you really destroy all the remnant of Israel? And he interceded. And the account ends in Ezekiel 9 with the first man, the one with the writing kit, coming back and saying, I've done what you commanded. That was quick. I guess it didn't take long to mark everyone in Jerusalem who grieved and lamented over the things that were going on. The other two angels didn't come back, not in, in Ezekiel 9. It took longer for them to do their work. Can I say to you that you may feel paralyzed, you may feel powerless to do anything about America, but at least this much is so. If you're a believer in Christ, you should grieve and lament over wickedness. Begin with your own, just as I do. Begin with your own and say, Lord, transform me and make me like Jesus Christ. What is the sixth lesson? Well, God knows how to rescue people from the city of destruction. Do you get that out of this? Do you see the angel in verse 16? Look what he says. When Lot hesitated, the man grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Do you realize how much you depend on God doing this for you? You get yourself into trouble. With sinful habits and with thought patterns and with behaviors that are not good. And the Lord, through his grace, by the indwelling spirit or by a brother or sister in Christ, or perhaps even by an angel, grabs you by the hand and says, Oh no, you're not going that direction. And gets you out of trouble. Uh, Lot didn't want to go. He wanted to stay right where he was. The angel, in effect, saying, You will thank me in the morning. Let's go. (laughs) Praise God for that. And he fled. Oh, how sweet is the grace of God to reach down into your life with his powerful hands and say, no, you're not going to do that anymore. He will frustrate your sin nature. And he will sanctify you. And he will give you new desires. And he will move you in a different direction. For he knows how to rescue the righteous from the day of destruction. He knows how to get you through this world, this vanity fair. He knows how to get you through. That is the sixth lesson. What is the seventh lesson? Well, Jesus' whole application of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Three words. Remember what they were? What did Jesus? Three words. This is the application of the story. Jesus, what is the lesson of Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember Lot's wife. That's that's his lesson. Remember Lot's wife. Well, what did she do? She didn't want to leave. She lingered, she disobeyed, she turned back, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, the fuller context of Jesus' statement is, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. If you're willing to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you'll save your life. If, on the other hand, you say, I don't want any part of that. Christian life is too hard. I have no interest in following Jesus. It's just too difficult. The gate is too narrow. The road is too straight. It's hard to follow Christ. Then you'll lose your life. So we follow Jesus. Remember Lot's wife. Don't become enamored with your earthly life. Give it up. Give it up. Give up the money. Give up the ease. Give up the comfort. Give up the th- anything that makes us like Sodom. Let's give it up. What application can I take from this? Well, if not, this whole sermon's been application. But I want to zero in on three things. First, flee to Christ. Christ is better than Zoar. Christ is better than the two angels that were sent to rescue Lot and his family. Christ is the incarnate Son of God who came down to take hold of you and never let you go until he's done saving you. And this is what he said. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and has eternal life, everyone who looks to the Son has eternal life and will not be destroyed, I will raise him up at the last day. Trust in Christ. If you wrestle or struggle secretly with the sin of homosexuality, Jesus has the power to deliver you. He has the power to rescue you. He's done it to other brothers and sisters. He can do it to you. And even if you don't struggle from that sin, if you struggle from the four that are listed in Ezekiel 16, arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, did nothing for the poor, he has the power to deliver you from that too. Trust in him. Secondly, remember Lot's wife. Be suspicious of the corrupting power of the world around us. It's working on you all the time. Get brothers and sisters to pray for you. Be accountable to them. Be part of a good, healthy church. Fight sin every turn in the road. Confess sin to God frequently. Read his word, saturate your mind with the word of God, lest you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, the third application is more pointed. I'm going to speak quite directly to the members of First Baptist Church. At the present time, we do not have an organized inner city ministry. We have people who have done things, but some of the leaders in our church uh, are not able to continue that ministry. We have no leadership for reaching out to northeast central Durham, to the poorest people in this area that cannot stay the same. Do you understand what I'm saying? It cannot be. We cannot have no ministry to the inner city. I know there are people who are listening to me today who want to serve and reach out to poor people in this community. I know that there are some that are hearing me today. If you want to help us, we have opportunities. We have a tutoring ministry that's non-existent right now. It's been fruitful up to this point but we need laborers but even more than that we need leaders who will organize it and who will do it. We bring in inner city kids and tutor them. Great opportunity to build relationships and lead the, those folks to Christ. We have the opportunity with Child Evangelism Fellowship to go into the public schools. This is one for us in the Supreme Court of the United States. To go into the public schools after hours and do Bible clubs for kids who have never heard the name of Jesus. And trust me, there are many in the inner city who have never heard of Jesus. Jesus. We have the opportunity, but we need 10 to 15 labors at least for each club. And we have other inner city opportunities. If you are interested in doing this, I'm going to do something that I only did one other time since I've been pastor here. I'm not going to stand at the back of the church. I'm going to go to the parlor, through that door, diagonally across. It's a nice room in there. I'll be standing there, and the other ministers will be there too. If you want to help us in some way, just come and see us afterwards. We'll take down your name, and we'll take down your information. And it could be anything from some smaller uh, ministry to a larger one. This is an opportunity for you. It's a chance for you to serve the Lord. Uh, If you want to serve him, just walk through there. If you're called to other ministries, don't feel ashamed that you're not going there. Serve in those other ways. But if you feel a calling to work in the inner city, please come and talk to the ministers at the end of the service.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org.